supreme exalted universal leader descendants of the kings and queens the overseer the overlord cream of the crop creme de la creme welcome 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 to the premiere episode of the off with her head history podcast presented by your host and that's me this is a historical show where on each episode i'll explore a prominent figure in history who lost their head or met their maker early in some other brutal fashion by way of execution. We'll explore these people's lives and roles they play in history and the circumstances leading up to their untimely demise. This series will focus primarily on the Tudor era, 16th century England, through the Renaissance period right up until the beginning of the French Revolution. There are a lot of rolling heads and methods of torture to discuss within these 300 years or so. I love history so much because I love looking into the past and finding familiarities. What do we have in common? How may we relate to these people? Have we as humans really evolved all that much? What are the true stories behind these famously executed folks of our past? Shakespeare, as far as I can tell from my research, wrote and used the phrase off with his head several times in his plays, and I can find no record of any earlier usage. For example, in Henry VI, Part Three, fifteen ninety three, Queen Margaret says, off with his head and set it on York gates so York may overlook the town of York. This star of this week's episode is Catherine Howard fifth wife to King Henry VIII, 17 or 18 at the time of her execution. And the spelling of her name is up for debate here, as we will discover later in a letter she writes, she signs her name with a K and a Y. Now I chose Catherine Howard as my first subject for this premiere episode, because I feel she is his least discussed wife, and perhaps the most misunderstood and dismissed. Her demise is certainly fascinating to say the least, and resembles a play that Shakespeare may have written, but I believe there is far more to her than what historically she has been written off as. Arguably the most slandered queen of all six wives, what struck me most was the language that historians have chosen to use to describe her time and time again. Whore, empty-headed wanton, stupid and oversexed. Naive and a juvenile delinquent, and a natural young tart, are but a few examples. She's gone down in historical writing as stupid and sexually promiscuous, with the recent one exception being Gareth Russell's book, Young and Damned and Fair. Even her most outspoken defenders have in some way played with these labels and terminology, writing things like, She was a woman who enjoyed sex. She was sexually awakened by the time she met Henry, and she was a beautifully blessed figure of a girl who knew it. I think this is somewhat problematic to stamp these labels on her, as though these are the only attributes to ever define her in her short 17 years of life. Interestingly enough, she is also often referred to as the woman who cheated on Henry VIII. But... Is his wandering behavior and acts of adultery off-limits to label here too, then? Why she and not he? Born around 1523, and I say around because birth dates for women back then were not recorded. That's why we don't have precise birth dates for most of these historical women of the era. 
So she's born into the ambitious and noble Howard family and to a father who was in chronic debt. Catherine, with a K and a Y, was then placed in the household of her step-grandmother, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, from 1531 to 1536. If this Norfolk name sounds familiar, it's because her uncle was the Duke of Norfolk. Yes, the same uncle to Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn. Ever heard of her? Coincidentally enough, Catherine and Anne were first cousins, though their paths didn't cross. So before we dive further into Catherine Howard's upbringing, I want to stop and present some context here of the events that have transpired in the last few years that lead up to Catherine Howard's debut on the scene. For listeners who may not know, Henry's first wife and longest marriage was with Catherine of Aragon. A true and noble queen in her own right, she was the daughter of Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain. Of course, his exit from that marriage was quite messy and infamous, and he spent over a year moving heaven and earth to marry a woman who was a lady-in-waiting to Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, a woman close to him in age, who descended from the French court with French style, quick wit, and was said to have the most striking eyes. They had quite the love affair, writing letters back and forth for over a year, and the king was nothing short of obsessed with her. Henry enjoyed her attitude and big mouth and opinions as a mistress per se, but once she was crowned queen and had her coronation, these attributes were then undesired by the king, who wanted to be a single and solitary ruler, not share the title with an equally opinionated woman. Of course, I'll have episodes dedicated entirely to Anne's remarkable story and eventual downfall at a later time, but it's important for contextual reasons to note the king eventually tires of her, and ultimately she is executed on false charges of treason and incest, along with those innocently involved including her brother George, Sir Henry Norris, William Brereton, and court musician Mark Smeaton. The king's already moved on at the time of Anne's beheading and marries his third wife, Jane Seymour, 11 days after her death. They were married a mere three years and she dies shortly after bearing the long-desired son for Henry from complications from her delivery, which was quite common at this time. Henry was said to have been devastated by this loss and grieved for a period of time in hiding before entertaining the idea of moving along to his fourth wife eventually being Anne of Cleves, a German noblewoman of whom upon first meeting with the king was dismissed as ugly, bearing resemblance to a horse, and being smelly, aka having evil airs about her scent. This marriage lasts a mere six months. So, back to Our Lady of the Hour, Catherine Howard. It's here at the Dowager Duchess House, notoriously known for its immorality, where she spends her early and most formidable teenage years, and here where she has sexual relationships with two men of her elder, music teacher Henry Mannix and kinsman Francis Derham. She is said to have been about 12 when the music teacher encounter takes place. It's important to also note here that in this era, it was said that both parties would have to release seed, if you know what I'm saying, for the woman to conceive a child. If she didn't become pregnant, it may very well have been presumed that the woman did not enjoy the experience. Also for this reason, a woman back then who was raped and subsequently became pregnant was not viewed sympathetically by others. 
the 16th century church, of which Henry had appointed himself head of, over and above the Pope and only next to God, required that both parties freely consent to their marriage. Marriages were not even deemed as true until the couple consummated. Later, when she is married to Henry, and when these early premarital experiences first come to light, Catherine stated she did in fact have a sexual past, but it was not necessarily one that she had consented to or welcomed, as per her words. Whether this is true, of course, remains the great mystery. Although the Dowager Duchess has allowed Catherine Howard a great deal of freedom in her household, when she discovers the Francis Derham sexual liaison, in 1539, she plucks Catherine from the house and secures her a position in the new Queen's Court, the brand new and German fourth wife of Henry VIII, as I mentioned earlier. This move is done as a means of safeguarding her reputation. At this time, around April 1540, she captures the eye of the ever-wandering and never-satisfied king, while Anne of Cleves receives orders to remove herself from the court in June of 1540. The king and his brand new, young, and vivacious bride are married the following month on the 28th of July, 1540, when he was 49 and she 16 or 17. This is also coincidentally enough the exact same day that King Henry's former right-hand man, advisor, and closest friend Thomas Cromwell is beheaded at his order in a secret and low-key execution. Catherine is given a title of Queen of Consort, rather than Queen in her own standing. So long as she is married to the king and he is alive, she is to be considered a queen, but not on her own standing or merit, unlike the previous queens before her. She didn't have a lot of experience at court. She goes from this minor role as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Anne of Cleves straight to the head of the household in such a short period of time while still a kid, essentially. The contrast to his previous marriage could not have been greater. While Anne's unattractiveness had rendered the king impotent, he could certainly not keep his hands off his beautiful and young new bride, so much so that the French ambassador writes, the king is so amorous of her that he cannot treat her well enough and caresses her far more than he did the others. The first few months were deemed successful for our new Queen Catherine, who spends her days practicing dances with her ladies-in-waiting, and most of all she adds youth and brings this giddy personality to the court and the king's life. You know, he is approaching 50, he's battling ill health, headed towards obesity, and most of all having trouble reckoning with his age and loss of youthhood. This is a man who, at this point, is desperate to recapture his own lost youthful vigor. She is small and petite, with a curvaceous figure, auburn hair, and sparkling and bright eyes that heavily resemble those of her late cousin Anne Boleyn. The king showers her in gifts, of which she loves, and decorates her in rubies and clusters of pearls, diamonds, and gold trim around her French-style hoods. A courtier even remarks that the king had no wife who made him spend so much money in dresses and jewels as she did. As Henry lavishes her with gifts, his new bride is content to treat him like a sugar daddy. The king even elevates the Howard family. 
appointing her brother Charles as a gentleman of his privy chamber, and her cousin the Earl of Surrey became a Knight of the Garter. It's hard to imagine this vibrant and young woman being attracted to her aging and chronically sick husband, but if she was repelled by him, she was smart enough not to show signs of it. Henry's desire for his new bride was ever-present, but there is no evidence that he was any more able to consummate this marriage than he had been his previous one. During this period, the king is seeking the aid of the most renowned physicians of the time, and it's been recorded that he was desperate to remedy his impotency. One of the more popular remedies at the time was a concoction made from the testicles of quail, mixed with large winged ants, bark oil, and amber. This was then applied generously to the affected member. I am not even joking with you guys. Towards the end of 1540, his young bride also inspires the king to embark upon a new health and fitness regime. French ambassador Mariac writes that the king rises between 5 and 6 a.m., hears mass at 7 a.m., then rides until 10 a.m. For a man of Henry's build and stature at this time, this must have been absolutely excruciating for him to maintain, for him and the horse alike. Henry declares himself rejuvenated, and then, like that, he is soon struck down with another illness in March of 1541. Ambassador Mariac goes on to report that the king is depressed with a mal d'esprit. He also reflects that he's gone into heavy isolation, is becoming more and more like his father every day, and is growing suspicious and paranoid by the minute. This self-isolation also leaves room for Queen Catherine to have an unusually amount of ample free time to herself. As the king, his court, and queen prepare for a journey to the north of England in June 1541, there are more scandalous events that have been transpiring under the surface within the Queen's private affairs. Catherine and Thomas Culpepper, a gentleman of the King's Privy Chambers, meet on a few occasions, first in April 1541, and a handful of times later that year. Thomas Culpepper carries a bad reputation as a rapist and likely murderer, but it is unsure whether these titles were realistically earned or not, he did have a brother, also named Thomas Culpepper, so it's hard to distinguish which one of the two earned such a bad rap. He was also said to be incredibly handsome, young, and striking in appearance. And also, at 26 years old, he's much closer to Catherine in age. Now, most of the listeners here will probably have heard of Showtime's outstanding TV series, The Tudors, and With Good Cause. Setting aside its poetic licensing for dramatic effect, they did nail and wonderfully depict many accuracies. But one thing to clear up here is that in the Tudor series, Thomas Culpepper is depicted as the king's groom of the stool, probably the most coveted position anyone could desire. A bit more about the groom of the stool. This was the person closest to the king. So while they had the very uncomfortable tasks of sleeping at the bed of the king, assisting the king when in pain, or using the bathroom, they were also so intimately close. Closer than anyone else by far in the court. 
Access like this also meant this position carried a great deal of trust, if not the most important and intimate relationship to the king. But in reality, he was a gentleman of the king's privy chamber. So pretty close, in the innermost circle for sure, but not the actual groom of the stool. Albeit, highly trusted and a close confidant to the king. So, back to the spring and summer of 1541. Little is actually known on the exact nature of their conversations, but it is said that they were involved sexually or at the very least in love. The popular assumption is that they had a steamy and dedicated love affair, but there is little evidence to support this. I do tend to lean toward this theory though. Catherine was dismissive toward Thomas Culpepper, stating to her head lady-in-waiting, Lady Rochford, and really a quick stop here and a side note, Lady Rochford was the widow of George Boleyn and played a massive role in the execution of her husband George and his sister Anne by offering up likely fabrications to the King's Privy Council when questioned about Anne Boleyn back in 1536. She is also often written about, and particularly in the novel The Other Boleyn Girl, as a woman who often gossips and constantly is meddling and in the middle of things often instigating, which is an idea I am totally down with. So where was I? Catherine stated to Lady Jane Rochford that she no longer wished to see him, Thomas Culpepper. Of course, they did see one another again while Lady Rochford stood guard and arranged multiple more meetings as well as instigated and encouraged the relations. Another theory of their relationship, which is far more political, suggests that Thomas Culpepper had gained knowledge of Catherine's premarital sexual history from her days at the Dower Duchess household, as rumors had circulated in the summer of 1540 that questioned Catherine's moral integrity. Given his reputation as an unethical man, this theory could also very well be likely too. This presents Culpepper in a more mysterious and manipulative light, for if this theory is true upon Francis Derham's unsolicited and sudden arrival at court, the rumors would have been supported and heavily amplified, placing Culpepper in a role above Queen Catherine, and he very well may have held this over her head. Back to her past coming back to haunt her. Around this same time, our old mate, Francis Derham, returns from exile in Ireland. Instead of wisely distancing himself from his former lover, he boldly shows up at court and the queen, likely submitting to his blackmail, takes a highly staggering risk by appointing him usher of her chamber. It is not long before things begin to spiral, as Francis Derham's behavior is incredibly reckless and ignorant and he begins openly boasting of their former relationship to anyone who will listen. His behavior endangered both he and Catherine, most of all when he proclaimed that he, Henry VIII, were dead, I am sure I might marry her, Catherine. It's important to note here that as defined in the 1534 Treasons Act, speaking of the king's death or even imagining it was a high treason offense which, if found guilty, the person would then be given the infamous traitor's death, a.k.a. hanged, drawn, and quartered. But more on that later. If this second theory were true, 
Culpepper would have heard of Frances Derham's bragging of her sexual history before marriage and very well may have pressured the queen to grant him favors in reward for maintaining his silence on her previous affair with Derham. Given Culpepper's character and reputation, this of course could be likely. We just don't know for sure. That is kind of the beauty and also frustration behind analyzing history. We piece together interpretations and collect the stories passed down to us best as we can to try and dig out the truth. But what we do know is that Catherine certainly did give him gifts and wrote a letter to him in the summer of 1541. This letter, though, is ambiguous in tone, and as for the ending of the letter, yours as long as life endures, this was in fact a variation of a standard phrase utilized by other 16th century correspondents. So whilst today that would be super intense, it was a standard way to close a letter during this time period. It only further fuels the fire when another acquaintance from the Queen's past at the Dowager Duchess house shows up unexpectedly, also demanding a job. Her name is Joan Baumer, and she writes in an early letter, I know the Queen of England will not forget her secretary, as a thinly veiled attempt at blackmail too. In June 1541, when the king and queen and close members of their chambers make this journey up north, Catherine does ask her ladies multiple times to cover for her as she secretly sneaks to meet Culpepper. But this behavior, which she had gotten away with during her years at the Dowager Duchess, could not be repeated in such an open setting like the court. She may have gotten away with these behaviors, but in her new role as queen, privacy was the one luxury she was certainly not granted. Royal courtiers were ever so watchful for any signs of scandal or misbehavior. One of the members of the household reports that looks pass between the queen and Culpepper, and that she thought there was surely love between them. Documentation of the Queen's disgraceful behavior that were recorded in late 1541 by French Ambassador Mariac and the Imperial Ambassador Chapuis do not state Catherine was guilty of adultery, but it was presumed by Henry's government that she had intent, so much to say that she had intended to commit adultery. Archbishop Cranmer, a man who is no friend to the Queen's uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, begins an investigation after rumors surface to dig into her past, as per the king's orders, who spends these first few weeks in complete denial. It is said Cranmer left a note to the king to inform him inside his church pew. There is absolutely a sense of a wolf in sheep's clothing with Cranmer that is unsettling given his position as a seeker of high faith and truth. But his behavior speaks to a more sinister personality as Gareth points out in his book. He basically gives her the rope to hang herself, so to speak. This is a woman who was never going to get out of the situation alive. I don't believe so, in any circumstances, shape or form. Especially with where King Henry was in 1541 at this stage of his ruling. More so, she was accused of concealing her premarital sexual past from the king. As Catherine had presented herself to Henry as pure, virginal, and unknown by another man, as they'd say back then, a maid. 
for French ambassador Marillac, Catherine was condemned on the basis of her history with Francis Derham prior to her marriage. Interestingly enough, though, he doesn't specify here what the Queen and Culpepper had discussed during their meetings, and writes that Thomas Culpepper had not passed beyond words, although the intent was most likely there to pursue past just words. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, Catherine was sexually involved with both her previous music teacher, Mannix, and Derham, but neither relationship qualified as love affairs by any means. Some may even say the encounter between she and Mannix was rape, and she very much did attempt to distance herself upon Francis Derham's unsolicited arrival to court. It's not her fault in any way that Francis shows up like this, wanting so badly to be involved with her and her new life as queen, and then he ignorantly and openly boasted about their previous relationship like such a fool. Looking at it from today's perspective, Francis's behavior is absolutely obsessive. Considering it's been years since he's seen her, he's been exiled to Ireland, and then chooses to leave the security of Ireland to come back and seek out this old flame of his so obsessively and with complete abandon. Of course, Catherine did not create a master plan to wed the King of England when she was presented to him as a prospect of becoming queen, and hindsight is a wild thing, isn't it? Of course, looking back now, she should have confessed her premarital past to Henry VIII, but as per the advice of her family, she concealed these facts, and her later condemnation is a result of this. She's a kid! She's a teenager! Entering this marriage completely ill-equipped to be queen, also unlike the women, the wives, who preceded her. When her past shows up to court to haunt her, she is unable to conceal these secrets and unsuccessful in silencing Francis Derham, who to me bears this obsessive and abhorrent behavior toward her. The poorly reputed Thomas Culpepper could very well have caught wind of these rumors and used them as manipulative tools held over her as well, like I'd pointed out earlier in the alternate theory. While Archbishop Cranmer and the council undertake their investigation and questioning of witnesses in late 1541, Henry orders Catherine Howard under immediate house arrest, and she is then stripped of all her ladies-in-waiting but one, Lady Jane Rochford. So what this looks like is total confinement to her bedchambers, stuck with this one woman who truly was never her friend, never really looked out for her in the first place. As the king lets the investigation roll out, presuming she is innocent at this point, but ordering his men to uncover anything at all to validate his thoughts and confirm her innocence. Catherine Howard is not told why she's being kept in her chambers or what is happening whatsoever. Whilst in this quarantine, Catherine goes absolutely bananas and is cycling through fits of begging to speak to the king, to screaming, to crying, and laughing fits. So much so that it worried the guards around her, and they removed sharp and potentially dangerous objects from her confined quarters so she wouldn't self-harm. I think this is less a matter of looking out for her welfare and more damage control, and ultimately, they want to be the deciders of her fate, not allow her to be. 
when the guards finally come to detain her, she escapes their grip and runs through Hampton Court Palace like a madwoman, begging and pleading to speak to the king and to explain herself, which is witnessed by everyone. Henry is in the chapel praying as ritual, and no matter what role one held, one would never just rush up to the king and approach, bombard him for any reason. That was absolutely forbidden behavior, like it still would be today. She is screaming to Henry, Listen to me! It's me, Catherine! I'm your rose without a thorn! This was Henry's nickname for her, and a phrase he often referred to her as. When something like this happens at court, everyone knows. Rumors spread so quickly. It's like high school. It really is. And to witness such a scene like this, I am sure did not help her image. Racing down in a crazy frenzy through Hampton Court Palace was just not something to do. It was more the behavior of, say, a teenager? Hmm? <laughs> During this biased and expansive investigation, the accused two men, courtiers and her ladies-in-waiting, are rigorously questioned by various counselors led by Edward Seymour. Francis Derham, being the only one not of nobility, starts to be tortured, and this is where he tells the counselors that it isn't he who is currently with her, but Thomas Culpepper. This revelation stops the counselors in their tracks and prompts the men to search his chambers where they uncover the aforementioned letter Catherine wrote to Culpepper from inside his drawer. At one point during his interrogation, Culpepper states that we didn't sleep together, but we wanted to. Catherine was then charged with leading an abominable, base, carnal, voluptuous, and vicious life, like a common harlot, with diverse persons. And I quote, Henry was infuriated. As we have to remember here, in the 16th century, adultery against a man by a woman was said to be an act women did when they were unsatisfied in their marriage sexually displaying the message that King Henry could not perform in the bedroom, and nothing was more embarrassing for a man than this at the time, especially for a growingly paranoid and cruel king. Not only that, but Catherine Howard concealing the previous facts of her sexual history were naive choices she did make. But furthermore, Henry had desired to marry her based on her purity and the idea that she had been untouched and he often called her his rose without thorns. She was presented as a maid. He wanted a son, a spare heir more than anything, and saw his young bride as a vessel for such a thing, therefore sort of entering into the marriage on the basis of a lie, whether or not the initial intentions of Catherine Howard were malicious. I don't think they were in this regard. I really don't. I do think King Henry VIII's vindictiveness and thirst for vengeance are on full display and at their height during this series of unraveling events. Henry never forgave her for keeping her past a secret from him, and it is this alleged deceit on Catherine's part, and not necessarily her supposed adultery with Thomas Culpepper, that leads to her death. On November 23, 1541, she is taken prisoner and stripped of her title. They hold her at an old nunnery, Cyan Abbey in Middlesex, 
and keep her there through winter, isolated and alone. That same winter, in December of 1541, Thomas Culpepper is beheaded for adultery given he is of noble status and once was so close to the king. But it's Francis Derham who really gets the worst of it. Derham is given the ultimate sentence for high treason, and the king is said to have smiled when handing down his sentence. So, for those that don't know, at this time, both treason and high treason were crimes that carried execution as a punishment, but those who committed high treason against the king would receive the infamous traitor's death, aka being publicly hanged, drawn, and quartered. Now, back then, being beheaded was considered a noble way to die, and like a courtesy. It was really the best anyone could hope for if sentenced to death but being found guilty of high treason, which carried a traitor's death, is what Francis Derham experiences, and it is surely something for the ages. If you aren't already familiar with the specifics, let me break it down for you. First, it would consist of hanging the accused in front of everyone in attendance from town, only to cut them down right before they lose consciousness. Then they'd get splashed with cold water or some sort of element to wake them up completely in case they were passing out from, you know, like pain or shock. <laughs> then they'd be strapped horizontally to a board where they would be disemboweled while still alive to watch it. The executioner would hold the guts up for the person to see if they weren't dead already and then set the innards on fire. Then they'd decapitate you and quarter your body into four parts, which would cleverly be distributed throughout the town you were from as a reminder to never commit treason or ever step out of line against the King of England. What I find so interesting here was public executions then were considered a fun family day out. You'd get the day off, and you'd often bring your whole family, including small children, to come and witness the execution of the day. It was absolutely considered to be totally normal and considered a fun activity for everyone. Except, of course, the executionee. They would then take the severed heads of the executed, and they were also put up on spikes for display. So they'd spike the decapitated head and display on the London Bridge or around town. And this practice was done for years and years. This was to warn enterers into London of the consequences of defying the king or breaking his laws. At one point, there were around 30 spiked heads on the London Bridge at one time. The tradition started in 1530 and it ended in 1660. So 130 years practicing this head spike display thing on the LB. The notable ones were the lucky ones chosen for such a display. Folks like Sir Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, by the way, considered the king's two closest friends and future stars of episodes of this show, William Wallace, etc. So, this was also the fate of Thomas Culpepper and Francis Derham, whose heads joined the London Bridge rankings and stayed on display for approximately five years to come. Oh, and fun fact... They would preserve the heads by dipping them in tar first. So meanwhile, our former teen queen Catherine Howard stays imprisoned at the former nunnery, and this wasn't like a dungeon per se. 
It was dark and without servants and general activities, but she still wore her gowns and has meals brought to her. While she's imprisoned here, Parliament passes a law that sounds to me incredibly convenient, as it is, of course, based around she and her actions. And this law states, and I quote, Within 21 days of marriage, one must disclose all of their sexual history, and one cannot entice anyone or seduce or attract anyone to sleep with them. One cannot invite adultery, even the prospect of it is a crime under this brand new and super specific law that King Henry and his Privy Council have made and passed within days. This law is proposed on January 29th, passed on the 7th of February, and Catherine Howard's execution is then set for Monday morning at 7 a.m. on February 13th, 1542. Catherine had no trial nor did Culpepper, Derham, or Lady Jane Rochford. Catherine spends her last night in her cell practicing how to place her head on the wooden block and requested the chopping block be brought to her cell as it was. Call it a dress rehearsal. I think having the wooden block brought to her cell the night before speaks a lot to her character and who Catherine was as a person. She cared about vanity. She wanted to be poised, and remember, she's been mostly hysterical up to this point. She wanted to get it, the tradition of the execution, the entrance, the manner of movements, and how to do it, precisely right. This is why she spends her last hours on Earth practicing this all night. On Monday morning, on the 13th of February, 1542, Catherine is taken by open barge, so this is like a small riverboat, to the dreaded Tower of London. And when the barge passes underneath the London Bridge, she sees the severed heads on spikes of her two former lovers. She arrives at the Tower of London in the courtyard of her execution site with what is described as a terror-stricken and pale but beautiful face. She is dressed in an all-black simple gown alongside a hysterical and loony Lady Jane Rochford, who is also to be beheaded on the same block, one right after the other, with no blood cleanup in between them, by the way. As for Lady Rochford, not even insanity can save her. King Henry had ordered Jane Rochford to be released to the care of Lady Russell, and his orders state for her to nurse her back to health, walk her back from insanity, so that they can execute her. As of that moment in time, one could not carry out an execution on any person declared insane. But Lady Rochford never actually makes a full recovery from her nervous breakdown, and that is precisely why the laws are amended to then permit the execution of insane people. It's an absolute circus of law amendments to see some of these executions through. Walking through the courtyard dressed in simple black velvet, Catherine has remained dignified, but suddenly needs help getting up to the scaffold. She sees the wooden block, and it's surrounded by hay, which this would help soak up the mass amounts of blood from decapitation. She is clearly starting to lose her composure. Executionees were given a chance to speak their last words to the public, and she was able to collect herself and muster a very short speech. As depicted on the series The Tudors, Catherine Howard states that her punishment is worthy and just, and 
I die a queen, but I would rather have died the wife of Culpepper. This became a huge legend as it was circulated steadily throughout the kingdom following her execution. No one is sure if she said this or not, but it remains a great mystery like so many elements of this story. So you're probably wondering why on earth anyone would say anything nice about a man who has unfairly sentenced them to death, right? But at the time of the person's execution, one would have to say only positive things about the king and sing his praises because if you said something negative about him in your last words, you better believe the king would go after your family, strip them of everything, land, money, possessions, and likely execute them as well. The king later goes ahead and also has the entire Howard family arrested, though her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, hightailed it out of there. But history comes back to haunt him now. And the family was arrested and convicted of treason, and all of their sentences were life in prison. Eventually, though, most of them were released, but they were absolutely condemned from society. In total, there were four executions related to this scandal. Francis Derham, Thomas Culpepper, the men together in December of 1541, and our former teen queen, Catherine Howard, with a K and a Y, and her head lady-in-waiting, Lady Rochford, who were also together executed on the same block one after another, February 13, 1542. Both women were thrown into the same unmarked grave, which is where Anne and George Boleyn's bodies had also ended up a few years prior. Catherine Howard was about 18 years old on the day of her death. Strangely enough, her motto in life had been, no other will but his, ringing more true than ever after her death. Much later on, during the Victorian period, Queen Victoria would put up a plaque marking their burial site. The plaque exists today and lists the names of the many, many victims buried together in this mass grave. Nowadays, there is also a memorial to Catherine Howard featuring her name and coat of arms in the Chapel Royal of St. Peter ad Vincula at the Tower of London. For many years, Catherine has gone down in history as guilty of concealing her past, sure, unlike her predecessor, Anne Boleyn. But it clearly remained uncertain in the decades, and even the century that followed her death, whether Catherine was ever actually guilty of committing adultery. As writer John Weaver states in the following century, neither this Queen Catherine Howard nor Queen Anne Boleyn were any way guilty of the breach of matrimony, that they were accused, and that Henry VIII cut them off upon false suggestions and rumors. And as I'd said at the beginning, modern historians overwhelmingly conclude that Catherine was guilty of adultery during her brief 18-month marriage to the king. Even those that have written of her innocence in this regard have still stated that she was definitely in love with Thomas Culpepper. I think it's important to revisit these opinions and this perception as an adulteress and that it should be challenged. It's a far more complex tale than these basic labels that have been assigned to these real-life three-dimensional people. Everyone is capable of moments of foolishness. There's no evidence that proves without a doubt that she had sexual relations with Thomas Culpepper and much of the evidence presented to the privy chamber that was supposedly said to prove her love for him 
don't actually indicate that she was infatuated or romantically involved with him. Today, it is widely said that the ghost of Catherine Howard haunts the long corridor inside Hampton Court Palace, the same place where she had briefly broken free from the guards during her arrest, running toward the doors of the Chapel Royal, begging her husband for help to no avail. As the story goes, her famous ghost can still be seen running along the hallway, which is now known as the Haunted Gallery. Visitors and even royal staff have reported feeling a sudden chill, strange sensations, and even hair being yanked or pulled suddenly out of nowhere while passing through this corridor. Thank you for tuning in and supporting this podcast, especially for this premiere episode. Coming up this season on the Off With Her Head History Podcast, I'll be exploring the lives and stories of historical figures Thomas Cromwell, Marie Antoinette, Mary Queen of Scots, and everyone's favorite feminist icon, Anne Boleyn. So please rate and subscribe to receive notifications when the next episode is out. Each episode is researched, written, and produced by Anne Bergsted, that's me, and you can find me on social media at The Hitchcock Brunette. If you have a favorite historical figure who met their maker by way of execution that you want profiled, or for suggestions, comments, sponsorships, advertisements, etc., feel free to email the show at offwithherheadhistorypodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. See you on the next one.